Welcome to Floor Speed Ahead. I'm Craig Fuller here with Mike Isaac, the New York Times bestselling author, super pumped for the battle for Uber. Mike, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Well, we're certainly excited to have you. I've read the book. It was uh, really compelling. I found myself sort of in the first part of the book empathizing with Tra as a founder, really empathizing with Travis's uh, uh, sort of position and thinking, you know, he's going after the taxi uh, consortium and lobby and the unions and these cities that sort of had this corrupt nature of it. And then later on in the book, sort of changing the position. Uh, it was a really compelling story about the history of Uber. Thank you, thank you very much. I, I, it's funny, if you remember back in 2017, Uber was just uh, in all the headlines as a sort of like really gnarly company. And uh, doing this book, I just wanted to get a more fulsome view of what it was like to, from founding to becoming this big company and how founders can change or in, in his case are not able to change and what that can do to a company. I remember, so my CFO had read it before I did and we had spent a lot of time talking about it and for the, you know, like I said, the first part, I, I was very empathetic towards Travis. The thing that changed me was the dinner conversation where they invited a lot of the journalists and started threatening journalist in terms of the coverage. Yeah, I mean, there's this there's this scene in um, from I think it was 2014 in the book uh, where, you know, th there's this long stretch of how Uber is essentially being sort of really critically covered. And uh, I think the company wasn't used to it at that point. They really weren't really able to take this sort of criticism in stride and keep their head down. And so, as you noted, you know, they're at this dinner and essentially say, we can sort of uh, put out a call for like essentially a hit piece on some of our biggest critics. And I just think uh, obviously that was a mistake. And then the other part of that mistake was that it got leaked to the press and, and they got sort of raked over the coals on it. But I think as a founder, you have to really take that in stride and, and just work on the product without, without worrying you know, about all your detractors all the time at least. Now, when Uber entered the freight and logistics space, you know, they made a lot of claims. Lewandowski got in front of the American Truckers Association and said that within five years, they would eliminate truck drivers and basically that they were going to run the fleet. I, that's, there's a lot of history to that, but I'm, I'm curious, did you, was there an early sense that the company sort of had a bigger mission where they, they truly believed their own press in the early days? I, I absolutely think that they sort of buy their own hype a lot of the time. You know, I feel like, I mean, and you as a founder might sort of appreciate this, but I feel like you kind of have to swing big when you're a founder sort of creating a company and, and it's hard to be, uh, it's hard to be super pessimistic all the time when you're trying to buck up against things that are fighting for you to fail. Right. And so Uber, the service, you know, initially envisioned as like a black car service, but you know, Travis Kalanick, the founder, and some of the other people's he, people he worked with started to see it as far beyond that, right? You know, whether it's into trucking or food delivery or, um, you know, freight management, just sort of logistics layer for all of the world, right? And delivering things to people no matter what. And so, you know, obviously a lot of this stuff is hyperbole when he's like, guess what? You're going to be gone in five years. Like, I think, I think no one really buys that, but I think they do swing big because they want to get people onto the idea that 
this is not a fly-by-night thing. We're actually willing to put a dent in this industry and become become a major player. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, as a founder, you're constantly being rejected. Uh, you know, whether you're raising capital or, or you know, you you have to live in a world of rejection and and a world of doubt. You, you know, I think something that drives founders is that sense of rejection. Um, and so it's it's once you start winning it's in many ways harder to keep grounded because that becomes self-reinforcing. It's sort of, you start to realize that you were right all along. And I'm curious, how did that, how did Travis and Uber evolve over time? I, I imagine they weren't, they didn't set out to be what some would describe as during his sort of reign as, as this big evil empire. I, I certainly think they started out much more humbly. I So I really agree with that. I think the, I think a real, um, issue for all founders and something that I don't think Uber and Travis realized until it was too late is, um, well, first of all, you know, most startups fail uh, and, you know, you kind of can't go into expecting you're going to be this sort of big company, but, you know, you can get away with maybe certain things as a small company that's scrappy that you probably can't get away with at, you know, a huge, by the time you're the size of, Google or IBM or whatever. When you're a big company, you have to sort of change with where you are. And I think the best leaders are able to mature as their company grows and and remain teachable and sort of get advice on how to sort of become more diplomatic over time, how to sort of, um, you know, in Uber's case, it was fighting with uh, local governments and fighting with the taxi sort of commissions over the world uh, initially. And in an ideal world for Uber, they would have been able to become more diplomatic over time and said, OK, look, we're here to work with you instead of break the law and just sort of barrel into your cities. And I don't think Travis or Uber were really able to do that. I think they they didn't grow with um, at some point Uber kind of won, you know, like it reached a tipping point where everyone uh, in the United States, at least, and really everyone close to the world started getting to this point where this was a service people really liked and wanted to use but they didn't really act accordingly and didn't shift into a mode of like, okay, what is the next stage of me being a founder, me being a CEO, and how can we sort of become a more family-friendly or household name rather than uh, an outlaw company, essentially? Yeah, it's interesting. You, you mentioned it. I think a lot of founders in the early days, they're the biggest champion. They have to sort of buy their own hype because it's, there's so much rejection and failure that's uh, upon them. And myself, I've been coached by a lot of, you know, whether it's um, investors or board members or just personal coaches that have sort of coached me along the process to sort of evolve. I almost wonder if Uber's success was so quick and there was so much, um, you know, psychophants around Travis that were reinforcing uh, what he was building that he didn't have those proper checks. I mean, venture capitalists were falling all over themselves to give capital. Do you think that's sort of what caused a lot of this sort of it seems like he's sort of stayed, at least publicly, he's, he's taken a, a huge step back in a public eye, um, at least in the broader media. Uh, do you think he gets a pass next, next time? So I, I, I think you're totally right in that. I mean, if you remember back to, um, let's, say, let, let's say like 2010 to 2020, um, financial crisis was sort of into full swing early on in that era. Uh, interest rates were coming down and VCs were 
the iPhone was becoming like a thing and VCs essentially had to park their investments into like high growth areas. And Uber, I mean, Uber, Uber hit the iPhone at a time where nothing like this had ever existed. And I, to your point, like they really did experience hyper growth in ways that most companies do not, right? And so most of the folks investing in Uber at that point were just trying to get along for the ride because the valuation of the company was was doubling, tripling, quadrupling in very short amounts of time. And and yeah, the the down the flip side of that is you don't have uh, personal coaches, you don't have VCs who kind of say who would otherwise say, hey man, you need to not <laughs> you need to not be a jerk all the time or or know when you know know when to sort of be humble or or approach companies in a way that isn't totally uh, flagrantly sort of uh, fighting the rules, flouting norms. And um, perhaps if it was a different company, perhaps if the growth was a little more steady and um, gradual over time, that would have been different, but it also probably wouldn't have been the same Uber. Yeah, I had a, an investor uh, tell me maybe a year ago, he said, Craig, you don't have to win all the battles. You don't have to fight those battles over and over. Uh, you know, just winning and, and doing right is enough uh, to sort of prove it. You don't have to go back and sort of uh, tie all those loose ends. Um, as you think about Uber today, you know, we, 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 the company's gone public. Uh, it's far less uh, visible in sort of the public media. There's a lot less controversy around uh, Uber. It served a massive service during COVID. I can't imagine you know, for the, just Uber Eats and those delivery models, I can't imagine not having access to that, um, really provide a public service. Do you think that the image of Uber is changing under Dar's leadership, or um, is, it still, is it still a company that's very polarizing? Yeah, I think there's a few things. I think one, um, you know, when Uber was in a lot of the headlines back in 20, let's say early 2017, after the election, this was also during a point in which Tech started becoming tech in general started coming into the public eye as a real focus of basically negativity of the flip side of what can happen in technology and you know Facebook uh, Facebook being manipulated by outside interests to sort of spread uh, misinformation or or pit people against each other. I think Uber kind of really played into this idea that tech bros were taking over the world and this evil company can kind of um, be an image of of how tech can be bad for the world. I think with Travis's sort of exit and a lot of turnover on staff and really just sort of uh, the idea that um, Uber wasn't this controversial company anymore and Dara Khazrushahi was going to come in and try to calm things down, I do think it is largely culturally different internally. Um, and, and externally, they've had to change in a number of different ways just in terms of you know, the pandemic really changed what their business is right now. The main parts of their business they're relying on, food delivery being an incredibly high growth area uh, as rides have sort of waned over time. So so they're they're definitely changed in terms of culturally, but they've they've had to make some real adjustments to how they how they fit this post-pandemic world. And, you know, to their credit, they have um been able to do that really quickly. And like you said, like there's some ways in which they, that it would have been much more difficult to navigate, uh, navigate the cities that were, I'm in San Francisco right now, and I can't imagine um, 
you know, and I don't have a car. So it's been kind of an indispensable service in a lot of ways. So Mike, when you think about Uber Freight, obviously very important to our audience, uh, the impact of Uber Freight on the overall freight market. Um, when they went public and filed their S1, they talked about this massive TAM of really being a world's transportation marketplace across all really modes of traffic. Do you think that that thesis is still intact or have they pivoted beyond that and thought differently about their business model? So I think, you know, it's funny. I remember leading up to the IPO, uh, they had a lot of, they had problems specifically in growth. You know, when you go to IPO, you want to show the street, you have a, you know, your growth days are ahead of you, not behind you. And Uber, if you remember, stayed public, stayed private for a very long time. All of the its hugest growth in ride sharing came when it was a private company. So by the time they got to uh, its IPO going public, they had to start pointing to areas in which that growth was even possible. I think food delivery is still a large growth area. And I think, again, post uh, COVID or during the pandemic, like that, that thesis probably works even more. Like um, they're going to be continuing to double down on investing in food delivery, possibly in the sort of, I don't know if you've followed all the like cloud kitchen, micro kitchen type stuff, but that's another sort of nascent area of growth that they're looking at. Uh, and I think Uber Freight was another one just because they had barely scratched the surface uh, a couple of years ago when they were sort of dipping their foot into that, uh, into that market. And now, um, you know, as you guys wrote about recently, they just raised a bunch of, you know, half a billion dollars in outside capital, uh, from a private equity firm to continue sort of pushing into, to the freight sort of system. And I think, I think they do still see the world as we are this logistics layer for uh, delivery around the world, no matter what those items are. And trucking, long haul freight trucking seems to be a sort of natural extension of them considering their ride sharing and delivery platform. And the way I see them looking at it uh, is what other sorts of markets um, make sense for us to break into? What what can we essentially be the middleman and sort of waypoint between two two sides at least. And so trucking seems like an obvious one for them. And that financial raise seems like they have at least somewhat more of a commitment to to the space. Yeah, what was really strange about the financial raise wasn't the fact that they were able to raise money, but it was who it was. This is a traditional private equity firm which buys businesses that have EBITDA and as has been publicly reported both by the New York Times, we've reported it, is that Uber Freight doesn't have EBITDA. In fact, there's a, a lot, been a lot of question about what the margin profile looks at the business. But I think bringing in a, a traditional investor uh, sort of changes that perspective. No, totally. I, I, I mean, the, the other part about them is they're willing to I mean, as, as, as anyone who follows the company knows, they're willing to sustain losses for a long period of time, right? And so um, I'm very curious, uh, right before the pandemic, Dara said they were trying to get to a point of profitability by 2021. Um, it seems like that's out the window at this point since the ride-sharing business has been decimated. Uh, and I imagine they're still gonna spend heavily to, get a, to widen their toehold in, in freight. But uh, yeah, I'm curious what those numbers will will look like within a year or so. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because one of the things they told us and they shared with us is this cursor concept of being able to be a universal logistics platform uh, because they have the world's largest last mile network. They're able to take the capacity 
that they have for consumer transportation or passenger transportation and combine it with uh, home delivery for you know small small packages and food and it seems like there may be some real opportunity for them to combine that network with their uh, uh, long haul or, or over the road trucking brokerage network I, I mean it's funny because early in their early days for uber they wanted to do last mile stuff far beyond just food or people or whatever, they did actually kind of see themselves as a competitor to Amazon. They never made the, leg they never made the numbers work uh, in a way that wasn't ex exorbitantly high cost for the end user or um, didn't create some sort of bad user experience. But, you know, their argument, and I don't think it's completely absurd, I think their argument is at scale, you know, or once we get enough people in enough cities sort of looking at looking at this as a viable like viable mode of, of shipping and viable mode of delivery then we have enough people on the ground in these cities to to make it work for us so i think i think the big what ifs right now are around regulation and and what um what their pay model for drivers is, is going to even look like in the future and that's you know i'm in california that's still an open question and i think all the states around the u.s are really looking at them for that but we'll see some answers probably in a month or so actually less than a month now mike ab5 has been a huge issue for uber lyft for these on-demand delivery models it's also a huge issue uh in the trucking industry because trucking does rely upon a lot of independent contractors. What is your perspective on that legislation? It's been, continues to be litigate. Trucking has become, or has been, I believe the Supreme Court of California decided that trucking was not subject to these regulations. But where do you think this all ends up? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fascinating debate. I've, I always, I make it a point whenever I'm in, uh, in an Uber or just sort of like trying to talk to drivers a lot, just, try to take the temperature on how people feel about AB5 and now Prop 22 in California. And um, it seems pretty evenly split. Like if, if you would, uh, or pretty deeply split, not, I wouldn't say necessarily evenly, but deeply split, split insofar as a lot of folks really are still stumping for uh, their uh, contractor status basically and and basically sort of tout the argument that uber says you know i can make my own hours this is basically uh my life is much more flexible than if i were working at you know in retail or something like that uh and those folks are probably a bit more fragmented to hear from than the the folks who don't who are fighting for employment status just because the folks fighting for employment status tend to sort of act like quasi unions and group together and have like a real strong voice there. And, and so, uh, but it, I think it's much more fragmented than you would think by the way you see some coverage of it and uh, pointing it to like overwhelmingly uh, people wanting it as an employee, employer employee status. I'm curious, I'm curious as to how it's going to net out, you know, Uber, DoorDash, Instacart, uh, all of these companies have vowed to spend, you know, $200 million on this Prop 22 initiative. Uh, some analysts I've talked to are convinced that it's going to pass. It's, people are going to vote yes sh by sheer amount of advertising and marketing spent on, on lobbying. Uh, but yeah, it's still pretty close. I'm very curious. Um, I'm very curious where it'll go. I mean, the biggest issue is that it seems hypocritical from sort of the outside looking in is that the taxi unions 
And the taxi, the folks that have, you know, have historically been involved in the taxi business are, are some of the, arguably some of the most corrupt organizations in most cities. And yet we have a for-profit business that runs a platform which doesn't sort of regulate the medallions but provides people with incremental work. I know that's not the argument that the, the, the folks that are against it, they sort of view it as the you know, company getting away with not paying taxes and employees and not providing benefits. But still, it just it doesn't seem like it, other than this being a argument on sort of pro-union and, and certain uh, uh, groups that are anti, I don't know this, how this benefits uh, either the Uber drivers or consumers in the long run, if, if this were to pass. Yeah, it's a really, I mean, I don't think that, I think that the company has been, they've basically just sort of said in so many words, and I've had conversations with people inside, like, this is going to be a big change. If this, if this doesn't pass or if AB5 sort of stands and this is going to be a really huge shift in what work looks like for our drivers, what, um, what it looks like to even hail a car and, um, uh, you know, and some people are, would argue, you know, that's a good thing or it's the cost of sort of providing full employment benefits to people. And then some would argue, you know, Uber has created an entirely, not, not entirely new because these, this type of work has existed, existed for a very long time, obviously in the trucking industry and many in my industry in journalism, uh, uh, writers are contracts for a long period of time, but they, I, I want to say they probably, uh, made it more popular, mainstream, you know, top of mind and consciousness. And, and some of the questions around how work should be are now to the forefront. I also think with young people, um, labor unions and socialism is more of an ethos that is coming into, um, uh, is becoming more popular and becoming more of like a, a discussion point than might have been in the past. So these issues are kind of coming to the forefront more frequently than they might have, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I always try to stay pretty even handed in terms of the benefits that um, that Uber has brought to the table for a lot of folks. And there are just as many people who really espouse the model that they that they have brought to the working to, to many workers, basically. I mean, if, if it AB5 starts to regulate the trucking industry, it, it would be really detrimental to uh, the capacity. I mean, you think about the ports, 40% of US cargo imports happen in Southern California. Uh, and a lot of that labor, a lot of the capacities relied upon uh, independent contractors. It would be just detrimental to California's position uh, in terms of its ability to, to really be competitive against the East Coast. And that's your, I mean, that's exactly the, the argument, uh, I think that, you know, a different sector, but still sort of same thing is like, look, we're essentially competing with labor, you know, everywhere. And in order to stay competitive, uh, you know, like they just sort of warned the marketplace is going to be really harmed once you sort of put this into effect and folks are going to feel the brunt of that, whether that's uh, the workers themselves or the consumers on the other side of it. So I do think part of it is, um, some people not exactly realizing what they've asked for or, you know, just sort of not fully realizing the extent to which there will be repercussions if um, 
if uh, Prop 22 fails or if AB5 essentially is carried out. We've just come out of a, a heated election cycle where a lot of conversation has been about whether technology is good or bad. Uh, there's been a lot of investigations on antitrust and, and uh, congressional hearings. What is your take on the shift from sort of this heroic view that Silicon Valley was going to save us all and, and sort of usher in a new world to now these are the villains. It's gone shifted from Wall Street to Silicon Valley. What is driving that? No, I, I so I've been I think about this a lot just for my day job and and over the past let's say 10, 20 and probably 20 to 30 years of technology coverage. Uh, you know, one of the I would say the early tech days of covering, you know, I used to work at Wired Magazine, and one of the big things was putting the CEOs on the cover, or you look at Forbes or, or Fortune or whatever, and a lot of it was like mythologizing and heroic uh, posturing around these tech figures. And that, you know, that worked in the early days where part of the, I mean, part of being a founder, part of being an entrepreneur is you have these grand aspirations or whatever, right? But now we're entering this more, tech is now mainstream, right? It's not like a bunch of wacky kids on the West Coast who are trying to save the world. This is how the entire world works and building companies and, and building the sort of underlying infrastructure to, uh, to how everything works is part of, it shouldn't necessarily be just valorized and mythologized. I think you bring it down to earth uh, with how it really works with fair and even-handed coverage. Um, uh, I don't think you have to fully be totally cynical about it and necessarily say it's a pure evil infecting force in the world. I don't, I don't think tech is unilaterally bad or unilaterally good. I just think it's, it is who we are now and it runs throughout all of society, all of the global economy, all, all of how you and I are talking right now. And so I think this sort of negative, um, negative slant on how tech sort of works and how tech is perceived is kind of probably a corrective uh, for the past, you know, early positive, more optimistic coverage of it. My guess is we'll get to a more um, even keel or the pendulum will swing back towards, you know, a more realistic presentation of what what tech looks like and, and how uh, these companies are responsible for it. But it's taken time to really educate um, frankly, to educate Congress and to educate a lot of the different leaders in government how this stuff works and how it should be sort of uh, looked at uh, in a fair way, at least. Yeah, I guess it's probably, if you kind of go back into history, the railroads were sort of in awe, people were in awe of the railroads for the first 30 years, and then they realized with the monopoly, Standard Oil, Rockefeller. So I, I, we've, this is just a different iteration. I think, you know, I look at my kids, my oldest is 13 years old, and I look at he lived in a world where he didn't really know the pre-internet age. I think, you know, being older, we're in awe of these founders because they built these massively successful businesses and they created not only so much wealth, but really changed society for the, you know, in many ways for the better. Um, and, and I think that's why people are sort of in awe of it. But now we're seeing the backlash just because of the sort of massive wealth concentration that's taking place. I, no, I totally agree. And I think it's funny because I forget, I mean, you and I were able to have a foot in both worlds of, of pre, pre and post, you know, having a computer versus like it being a crazy thing to have a new desktop in your house versus like now 
we're going to have computers on our faces and in our pockets at any time of the day, right? And so I think you're right. I think people, young people now who are growing up where computing was just a part of daily life as a really, that can have a really different take on it. Whereas folks like you and I might just be like, this is crazy and how quickly it happened and how, how drastically the world has changed in a short amount of time. And there's something to be appreciated about that. You know, it's just now we need a more fulsome look of, of the positive and negative aspects of it, I think. I, I couldn't imagine quarantining, uh, if you think about 2020 and quarantining without the internet or without grocery delivery, uh, all the things that we were able to take advantage of uh, in this, this year that if didn't exist, I wouldn't imagine that a quarantine would be very pleasant, if at all. I don't even think it would be sustainable. That's right. No, I mean, I think about, I mean, my whole job now is, is from my, from my dinner table basically, but no, you're exactly right. Mike, I want to get, before we wrap up, I want to ask you a question about SPACs. I don't know if you've delved into any of your coverage around SPACs. Uh, in trucking, there's been some really big ones, you know, thinking about another founder that didn't understand the nature of their own tweets and sort of the nature of their own press was, uh, uh, the founder of Nikola Motors, uh, who was basically fired from his own board uh, because he he became he was at, you know first viewed as this sort of you know Steve Jobs like character that was going to take and deliver a hydrogen future to to all of a sudden a very toxic figure uh, in the automotive and and freight space, and I'm curious. Do you think that, I mean, I don't know if you've delved into the, the Nicole story specifically, but is this SPAC thing for real? And do you think it creates a, a platform similar to what we saw with WeWork where companies are sort of being inflated and all of a sudden they're as valuable as one founder? I, so it's funny. I was just emailing with my colleague last night. I, I, we worked together on Silicon Valley stories, finance stories, VC stories. And like SPACs are, it's this. I feel like it's like incredibly fad-like financial instrument, right? That seems to be very hot right now. Um, it also seems unsustainable in a way. It kind of reminds me of how, um, I mean, I just think about when SoftBank came into the picture in the Valley and started flooding all this money around everywhere. And then we got to a point where, you know, now you see Masasan sort of retrenching, showing that, you know, that that level of money uh, uh, breeds a kind of indiscipline around how a company operates and how uh, you should sort of operate financially, fiscally. And I wonder if there's going to be a corrective around that too. You know, like soft, and now SoftBank is in this place where you look at WeWork and how they've essentially had to eat crow. Uh, as the founder was like a snake oil salesman and other different sort of. Uh, different companies that they poured billions of dollars into expecting like huge returns. I don't know. I just, I wonder if every so many years they're just, they're these new different types of financial instruments or financial different waves come in, mess up the equilibrium of, of what um, companies and Valley and investment looks like. And then we, that all like gets, worked out of our system and then we go back to some sort of baseline. I'm not quite sure. It's still early, so I'm watching it intently, but I'm not quite sure how it's gonna net out. A lot of people have sort of compared SPACs to cryptos. If you think about the crypto craze of three years ago, 
everybody was doing a coin offering, and then, you know, at first there may have been some legitimate use cases for it, and then all of a sudden you had this just sort of massive group of, of you know, criminals and fraudsters or dreamers and schemers, some that just didn't have a definable business plan, others were scheming, that went, you know, were able to raise money. And I, I wonder if that's sort of what's playing right now in this bat market. I mean, the one, I'll give the, the one like um, uh, pro argument I'll say, or, or what computing sort of folks always say is, any popular platform immediately attracts fraudsters and scammers or whatever, like this is sort of, they come when the audience comes, right? You know, Facebook grew enormously and then so did all the spammers and scammers or whatever. So they can they can be like a sort of lagging indicator of the next successful platform, but I also think it just, it brings with it a lot of, it's hard to see the real value, intrinsic value when everything's really distorted. I mean, the Bitcoin craze a few years ago was totally insane and I watch CNBC every day as, the little ticker of the price kept ticking upwards. So I don't know. I'm going to wait like six more months and see where we are there and if, if a lot of scams sort of wash out or, or what happens. Maybe we'll see. My, maybe your next book will be on Trevor Milton and the story of Nicola. And uh, it, it's, it's a crazy story. I mean, he was able to raise billions of dollars, get up to $30 billion market cap on a company that has almost no revenue. The only revenue he's generated is the solar panels he's put on his house. And so uh, an insane story. It's our own version of WeWork. People have actually compared uh, Trevor Milton to Elizabeth Holmes uh, of Theranos. Uh, so a lot in those communities, a lot to be discussed. It's, it is exciting for us in freight to be sort of have these stories because whether it's what happened with COVID and supply chain or what's happening with Tesla and the Tesla Semi or the, you know, Amazon, all these stories were starting to play a central role or be a central actor as an industry. So we, we certainly appreciate that at Freight Waves and our industry appreciates it. So uh, an exciting time. No, that, I was going to say, welcome to the wide world of scammers and fraudsters <laughs> invading the industry. Yeah, we, we, cer we certainly get those. Mike, I really appreciate the conversation. Uh, your book is available uh, I, at wherever books are sold. It's a great book. You should absolutely read it. It's a real thriller. Super pumped, the battle for Uber. Uh, a lot more than we talked about today about uh, the Uber story in the foundational days, sort of the evolution to a large-scale business, and really a, a, somewhat of a tragedy of sorts. Uh, it reads like a great tragedy uh, So for, for certain you. people. Thank but. Really enjoyed it, Mike. Thanks for coming on here today and appreciate you being a part of Freightways Life. Anytime. Thank you for having me.